0: The Mission publishes the number one newsletter for accelerated learning. Learn from the best and brightest by joining our community at themission.co forward slash subscribe. In part two of this special interview on the Mission Daily, Chad sits down with Debbie karg author of Fast to the Night, A Woman, Her Dogs, and Their Journey North on the Iditarod Trail. Debbie tells the story of how she bounced back to finish Iditarod the second time, and the unbreakable bond she forged between her and her dogs. We hope you enjoy. So the, the first time you finally called it quits, it's not going to happen this time, but when you stopped... I don't want to say quitting because you you came back and you won or you you know you finished the race but how did you finally just relax and say okay I didn't make it this time but I'm going to make it next time what was that process like
1: Well it took a long time I returned with some assistance to the Shaktoolik checkpoint my dogs and I were flown to Nome In a volunteer, there's a tremendous number of volunteers that help with the race. And one group of them is called the Iditarod Air Force. And they have nothing to do with the military air force, but they're volunteer bush pilots that donate their time to the race to transport gear to each of the 22 checkpoints. And they transport dogs and mushers. So I was flown to the finish line where my husband and children and other family members were waiting It was funny. We got into this plane and me and my nine dogs and a couple of the dogs jumped right up on the seats and literally looked out the window. And I asked the pilot (laughs) if I could sit on the floor with the rest of them. And he said, sure. And uh, I got there and I had thought about this a lot. And Mark, my husband and I talked about it a lot that I insisted by the end of that first run that Mark was going to run Iditarod the next time. And so we were going to alternate doing this. And part of this, as I said before, was because it felt selfish to me. I felt like, wow, we, we have been a team forever, he's got to have the fun of doing this. Sure. So I got out of that plane, threw my arms around him and said, they are all yours. And uh, <laughs> he said, no, you've got to finish what you started. And I said, no. <laughs> so it took me a couple of weeks to regret that offer, but Mark ran the next year and he finished. Now oh, wow. he had trouble in his qualifying races with that dog team. So we- For
0: similar reasons?
1: For similar reasons. And that year was tough between me and my husband because I had many more sled hours on me and he was the support person, right? So all of a sudden I have to become the support person, except he's a full-time attorney. So I did a lot of the training for him. The dogs acted up on some qualifying races. And we I all of a sudden realized I had to coach my husband. You know, that was my new job. And Mm -hmm. I knew these dogs better than anybody. And he was- asking me please to take charge. So the first thing we agreed upon is we were gonna go to an old mentor and get some veteran dogs off his Iditarod roster to help our teams have the confidence to get through these races. And so we leased from a wonderful friend and mentor called Vern Halter, who was a very accomplished musher, four dogs that Mark took on the race and he got to know him no problem. The next, year, his finish line then became my new starting line because I knew through the whole right. year that Mark was running, if he wasn't successful, I wasn't gonna go again. Right? People were saying to me, Debbie, you need different dogs. Well, those were our dogs. I wasn't gonna sell my dog team. Mm-hmm. I, I would never sell a dog team. I mean, those were the dogs that I had committed to. We were gonna have a lot of fine adventures together. And if they didn't, if we couldn't work this out, I would do something else with them. We'd go on expeditions or something like that, but we were not, I was not going to give away these dogs or sell the dogs. So Mark's finish line gave me a green light to myself that, yes, I was going to do it again. So my first race was in 2003. Mark finished in 2004. Now he and Andy, the two boys in the family, have I did rod finisher belt buckles and I don't, which was a bone of contention for quite a while. (laughs) So I went in 2005 and did finish, but at that point the stakes were pretty high and I took the original dogs. I did not take those dogs that Mark, I I took a few of them, but I, I did not take, I took the complicated dogs. We had at that point figured out who was causing some of this behavior and I insisted on training and taking them again
0: so you identified the problem and then got into the retraining and tr- basically trying to fix it right instead of That's giving right. up on so do you feel like that strategy maps to other areas of your life in terms of not giving up on people or challenging friends challenging family members because we all we all sometimes get in that situation right where we know somebody is maybe spreading to- you know toxic thoughts toxic ideas and it sounds like you're practicing here, basically forgiving, trying to work with people even after the point of frustration. Do you feel like there's a lesson there?
1: I knew I'd learned something today. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I can improve in that.
0: Yeah. And this is something I'm working um, on. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out. Yeah.
1: I, I de- that is actually not a lesson that I had identified from this race. And I certainly learned it. I think I could benefit by spending some time thinking about it and applying it to to some human situations.
0: Yeah. I'm, no, I mean, I'm yeah. definitely like in in awe of you doing that? Because it seems like it would be very, very easy to just say, let's just use the different dogs. Let's use the the professionals, I guess, or the, the ones that have already proven themselves in a way.
1: But, right. Well, the dog-human relationship is so tight. I never would have, I mean, the dogs are part of my family. So like I would never trade out a family member for a new family member. Sure. However, yeah. it is a very logistical experience, undeniably to get from Anchorage to Nome by dog team, which does have some similarities with work associates or friends you're engaging on a artistic project with or whatever. Right. And you I think- You need some constraints and some Yeah, I think and... to have the, the resilience, the patience is, is a really hard thing to do sometimes. And there's lots there from my race. The reality is my second race did not go smoothly either. And we had trouble again on the sea ice.
0: Wow. So you're back to the sea as you're approaching it. to my (laughs) horror. As you're approaching it, are you worried? Are you freaking out a bit? Or are you doing a good job of staying calm?
1: Well, as we approach it, I have a dynamite dog team. I'm a much better musher than I was before. And I have dogs that are better trained. We're in great sync. I had gotten horribly sick for about 24 hours. So the dogs and I had stopped at a checkpoint and while well, I recovered enough to keep going. So I knew they were very, very well rested, but-
0: And by recovered enough to keep going, you probably don't mean 80 to 90%, right? You're you're probably still hurting-
1: Oh, I was pretty, pretty sick. Pretty yeah. sick? I was sick. Like pretty when you sick.
0: went back on the trail? I was like yeah. very
1: sick, but nothing was gonna stop me at that point because yeah. we were having a great run. I mean, I, it never dawned on me that getting sick was gonna take me out of that race. That wasn't even an option. Not an option. No. So we- Approach the sea ice, and I am a type A person. I get anxious like everybody else. A lot of this book is about that landscape between daring and doubt. And the doubts were beginning to tip the seesaw into an unhealthy pattern in my head. And we took off on that sea ice again. We left that checkpoint in fine form. And the closer we got to the shelter cabin, which is where my dogs stopped because they saw this grass alongside the shelter cabin where the wind had blown off the snow and they thought that would be a cool place just to curl up and and stay. And that's that was as far as I got in 2003. We got to that shelter cabin and I was hooting and hollering and they went flying past it. I gave an obscene gesture to the shelter cabin. I was all excited. That's
0: incredible. That's great. <laughs> One hand or two. To just to just go? Uh, I'm sure heads. too. Awesome. <laughs> and I
1: might've done it a few times. <laughs> That's great. And uh, then they started acting funny. And I was on the ice with another person who was a friend of mine from other races. And she said to me, Debbie, let's do this together. She knew I'd gotten sick. She had gone ahead of me for a few checkpoints. And by the time we got to like she had actually taken extra rest. Not because I asked, but because she said, I want to cross the sea ice together. And I had learned on that race that traveling with her was a wonderful thing to do. And I had never done that before. Again, it's the independent hard driving attitude. I'm better on my own. You can get screwed up by other teams, but Melanie was behind me and I waved her past because dog teams will chase another team much happier than they'll lead out. Hmm. She passed me, we kept going. We got to Koyuk, big celebration. I was so excited. The veterinarian said, my dogs look great. We were then going to go the last 200 miles to Nome and got up in the morning. I said, it happened that we spent some nighttime hours sleeping that night, which was great. Normally, you're not necessarily going to sleep in the night, but our timing was was wonderful that night because you just sleep better at night, no matter what you do during the day. At least I do. And uh, I said, ready? And we decided I was going to go first. My dogs all stood up and started barking and and pulling on the against the line like they had done nothing. And everybody, oh, I knew a lot of people at the checkpoint because I was kind of the comeback woman at that point. And so- A lot of people were watching. People were watching, villagers were watching, dogs jump to their feet, barking, barking. I take off, Melanie takes off. We go over the tundra, it was windblown of course, down onto the sea ice, couple hundred yards, boom, they all sit down.
0: So was Melanie, are you talking with her at this point? Is she helping you figure things out or are you scrambling to
1: well to get them moving? I could mo- not believe my eyes because their mood went from elation to misery exactly the way it was in 2003. This time the wind wasn't blowing. It wasn't terribly cold. And they were on their little dog butts, noses down, ears flat. She went by me and stopped. A chasing dog will usually go. My dogs didn't follow. She and I talked about what to do. We talked to the dogs, switched some leaders around. She said, I'm going to go now, get them to go. I watched her leave. My dogs would not move. And I sat on that ice and I thought, I cannot believe this is history repeating. Melanie miraculously and with great talent drove away into the horizon, but horizon lines are funny on the sea ice. And within about 10, 15 minutes, I see this dog team coming toward me. She had turned, I believe it, she had 15 dogs then around in a circle and come back. And there was this point where our dog teams are nose to nose. Hers going back toward the checkpoint, mine towards the next checkpoint of Elam. And she said, I am going to talk to your dogs, which she did in a stern voice. She knew most of them by name. And then I'm gonna circle behind you and go by again, get them going." And they wouldn't move and she left. I went back to Koyuk and I left in the hands of veterinarians four dogs, the four dogs that I thought could have caused it. So I did that and then I, because a team is, you know, if a leader is reluctant, that can poison the team. And at this point I realized I have a virus on my team. Yes. So I left them in the hands of veterinarians Including the alpha girl who I thought started it in 2003. Her name was Kanga. And I hated leaving these dogs. I mean, right. But and, at least uh, you had
0: tried. You'd right. given them the, all the chance, right? That's right. I'd and... given
1: them a chance. And I really considered this problem a shared problem, you mm-hmm. know? And there were some bystanders that were male saying, oh, you need to be harder on those dogs. And I'm like, you know what? Now I'm starting to really stand up on my own two feet. Mm-hmm. You don't know this dog team and me at all. You know we're having trouble, that's all you know. I'm the only one that can fix this problem and I have to do it my way. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had gotten mad at the dogs. That just made them more miserable. That, that was not gonna work with my dog team. Right. It's not the way I roll. So um, then for the rest of the race, I had a new smaller dog team, nine dogs, which is not small, actually. And I would leave on the heels of another musher. Then my dogs would get all elated to be chasing another team. We'd pass the other musher, loping along at the end of Iditarod at a speed that no Iditarod dogs go. And I made it with fits and starts to the finish line. But it, we had trouble every time we went on.
0: Did you call ahead to your friends and family that were waiting at the finish line and saying, like, I had to drop these four dogs, or is there is that even going on? Or are you just focused on getting there by well, any means?
1: I knew my family was watching and and very worried at this point and probably getting very tired of Debbie and these <laughs> dogs in this race. There is a scene, I will never forget, where they stopped in the middle of a bay called Golovin Bay. And I went back to this village and I called the race marshal. And I was getting really tired of people saying to me, you need to be harder on those dogs. It made me really angry. And so I called the race marshal and I didn't want to talk to my family. And Actually, I called my family, but they didn't want to talk to me. And the race marshal picked up the phone. Mark Nordman, who's the race marshal... He said, where are you? He knew exactly where I was. And I said, I'm in Golovan Bay. And I said, my dogs are on the ice. I walked back to the village. I said, if this is our finish line, it's okay with me. And then I said, you know, those belt buckles aren't very good looking anyway. And, <laughs> and in hindsight, I realized that was such a ridiculous thing to say, but we, the joke in our family had become that Andy and Mark had these belt buckles and I needed mine and he said to me Which debbie, you get after
0: successfully completing
1: right you get the belt the belt buckle is the finishing you know it's like a world series ring or something sure and so he said debbie modro you listen to me he said there is one finish line and i'm looking at it is that clear and i said yes and meanwhile i'm coughing away i'm on antibiotics i have an upset stomach and he said now you figure something out you we will get to Nome. You do what you can and I will see you here. I said, okay. Little schoolgirl in me comes out. I'm, the principal is just giving me a talking to. <laughs> and uh, you have to read the book, but but I got there. So you got there. I did finish with a very happy, healthy dog team that went flying over the last 22 miles of the Iditarod because they have gotten lots of elective rest in the end.
0: What was that feeling like? And was that feeling, did it make it all instantly worth it? Did it, how'd your mindset change at the finish
1: line? I will say I will never experience satisfaction like I did running down Front Street of Nome. I had a history of seeing my son do that, my husband. I had dreamt of that moment and I had fought tooth and nail to get there. And really until I was on that, there's sea ice right outside of Front Street. I mean, I <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was ever going to get there until like the hour before. But it people have said, oh, what a triumph. And it wasn't purely that. And I knew it at the time. In hindsight, to me, the value of that finish line was A, to get the monkey off my back and to stop thinking about success or failure. Which, in hindsight, I now realize that my first race was not a failure. People told me that at the time, but I didn't believe it.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, especially people that they're not in your exact position. Just like we talked about with the vets, they don't have all the context you do. So they might be saying, no, you're wrong. But
1: But to ultimately- me that first, well, to backtrack a little, at that first race, when I went back to the checkpoint of Shaq Tulik, the checker came out and pretty much had tears in his eyes and he said, Debbie, I'm sorry. There's some school kids inside that want to talk to you. And I just said, "What on earth do they want to hear from me?" You know, and he said, "You are a hero to them." And I said, "No, I'm not." And then I went in and had to face these school kids. Yeah. You know, so they straightened me out a little bit then, but to really believe that failing the first time and having a very messy run on the second time mm-hmm. equaled success was not quite how I was wired. So if I hadn't got to the finish line, I never would have learned that, for one thing. It gave me the chance to look back and, and shake perfectionism from my outlook.
0: We were talking about this in the kitchen before we came out here, but how did dropping that perfectionist mentality help you? How did you get past perfectionism? Because so many of us can get trapped waiting for the perfect time, waiting until we're perfect people both of which never never end up showing up.
1: This is why I, I still believe so much in taking on big projects that you think you can't do. Or if to, to do something that you think is impossible, I think is really important. Now, I've been fortunate, I elected to do this. People are put in impossible, devastating circumstances all the time through right. no doing of their own. So let's face it, running rod is a luxury, but the lesson I learned can be applied to the hardest moments in my life. You know, a family member gets in a devastating accident or the miscarriages, things like that. To have the resilience, real resilience to me comes from keeping your eyes on a distant horizon line, not getting too stuck in the moment mm-hmm. and recognizing that each, each moment along the way is not going to be perfect any more than the whole way is going to be perfect. And you just have to look beyond the present if you can get your wits about you, keep a sense of humor, and let yourself off the hook a little bit. You know, if you're really down and knocked down, just let yourself be that way, but don't choose a different end point if you can possibly help it, you know. Be and rigid
0: I, about the goal you set, the end point you right.
1: set right or or choose a different goal maybe if that's more realistic but let the Don't. moment you're in lead to something new sure and and know that something new can be great that can come from the wreckage of where you are you know and i think about this in a lot of different ways a reader pointed out to me that that's the secret of aging is not to be a perfectionist <laughs> and i thought huh i learned so much from my readers and this is one more of those times but i have known people that have devastating accidents mm-hmm. and their whole the view out their window changes completely. And lo and behold, there is another way to have an incredibly productive, loving, and fruitful life.
0: Wise words. So speaking of readers and having faith and building resiliency and everything like that, your book was first published in 2013.
1: 2016.
0: 2016, sorry. And so your, your book is published in hardcover, and it's just been published this summer in paperback. How has that been, and who is this book for? What did you seek to do with this book?
1: So I wanted to give something back. I felt like I'd lived a wonderful journey that I was very fortunate to live, and I wanted to make sense of it, but I also wanted to share it, because to me, that made it seem like it was living up to the quality of what I'd been so fortunate to experience. I thought writing a book would be very easy for me, haha. So I set out to go to writers' conferences a couple times a year, and I figured within three years I would have a really good draft, and I thought that was a decent amount of time to put into it. Well, at the end of three years, I was talking to agents and editors who loved the idea, but kept telling me what they wanted the book to be about. And I realized that it didn't matter what they wanted the book to be about. I knew that the book needed to be an artistic expression from my deep self. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to school to get a MFA in creative writing. And at that point, I was, I guess. 55 and went to a low residency MFA program, Pacific Lutheran University, has this fabulous program. The classmate, My classmates were between 25 and 85, I think, 75 or 85. And uh, I learned how to write up to the standards of my story, at least. And so I did that, but interestingly enough, I don't think I would have finished the book if I hadn't finished I Iditarod, because a lot of what I just described about resilience came into writing the book. And at one point at school, I walked into a workshop and there was a quote up on the wall by William Stafford. It was about writing and the wonderful, wonderful faculty member was trying to encourage everyone through the trials of writing. The quote by William Stafford reads, maybe your stumbling saves you and that sound in the night is more than the wind. So I I looked at that and I nearly fell over because of course, that windy That's mutiny profound. on the sea ice had just about derailed my Iditarod dream, so to speak, and it really was the stumbling that saved me. And, and now I'm working on another book and I have to remember this again and again and again because it's the same <laughs> thing all over again. And it's the same thing about perfectionism. I can write a chapter into the ground and kill it completely if I don't keep sight on the next chapter and the next and the next. Even though I've learned this lesson, I'm as guilty as anyone is falling back into that trap.
0: Same here. It's something we all have to, I guess, keep working every single day. This
1: is why I like talking to people because I remind myself of what I learned.
0: (laughs) Same here. Debbie, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. And for everyone out there, be sure to check out Debbie, check out her book. And you're online, you're on the socials. So is there any place that listeners should connect with you?
1: Well, I have a website at com, And um, I'm on Facebook, two different websites. I tried to make Debbie Clark Motoro be the professional website, but I, I can't keep them separate. It's just the way I am. No, so.
0: that's perfect. And
1: I'm on Instagram also.
0: Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much, Debbie.
1: Thanks. It's a real honor to be on the show with you.
0: Uh, it's, yeah, our pleasure. Thanks. The Mission Studios creates custom media for world-class companies like Salesforce, Twilio, Katera, and more. To connect with our team of creatives, you can reach us at infothemission.co.
1: Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.